Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Welcome back to episode two of Looking Above. I'm glad to be here with you today. Today, we're going to dig into John chapters three and four. I originally was intending to uh, tackle the book of John in eight weeks, but the more I look at it, I think we're going to end up spending 10 weeks here. Uh, So I hope you'll stick with me for all 10 weeks. We'll do two chapters a week until the last week, and then we'll uh, do the final three in the 10th week. But today, as we look into John chapter three, it opens with this story of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, a leader who was a Pharisee. And it says that Nicodemus comes after dark one evening as probably a sign of caution. Um, It was a good time to come because, first of all, the crowds wouldn't be around Jesus, so he would get Jesus all to himself. But because of who he was, because he was a Pharisee, he comes under the cloak of darkness so that probably his uh, peers don't notice where he has gone and see that he is going to talk to Jesus. But here Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and Jesus says to him in verse three, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asks him, you know, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus is looking at that term again, which uh, the Greek word here is anothen. And he's only looking at it uh, in the here and now. One one definition of this word, which would be again, like we translate it extremely literally for a second time again. But that word anothen has two other meanings that give a lot of depth to what Jesus is saying. Uh, the first meaning is from the beginning completely and radically. And the second is from above or from God. So Jesus is saying, unless you are completely and radically born from above and from God, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he goes on to to explain this, you know, in verses five and, and forward. And he says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit those two terms there, water and the spirit. Water was a symbol of cleansing, so of wiping out the past. And then the spirit is a symbol of power, giving victory in the future. So no one can enter the kingdom of God without being cleansed from their past and then given the Holy Spirit who enables us to have that victory in the future. So we are limited by our humanness. But when the spirit lives in us, then we can have victory and we can have power. So he's 
helping Nicodemus to start to understand some spiritual truths. He's talking about being part of the kingdom of heaven. And when we are part of the kingdom of heaven, we are fully and completely submitted to the will of God. Nicodemus still just isn't quite understanding. And so Jesus kind of chides him, right? And he says in verse 10, you're a respected Jewish teacher, yet you don't understand these things. And he tells him, you know, if you don't understand this and you don't believe what you've seen, you're never going to believe me when I tell you about heavenly things. If you don't understand earthly things, however, will you get the things of heaven? Jesus has simplified these everyday examples and given him examples from human life. And yet Nicodemus can't seem to grasp the simple things, the truths. And I think this is just a good moment for us to remember that it's not just about knowledge. Nicodemus likely had a lot of knowledge. He was a Pharisee. He was extremely learned. He knew a lot of things, but there is more than intellectual knowledge. We also have to experience the power of Jesus. And Jesus goes on and in this next um, section, he refers to himself as the son of man a couple different times. This term that he uses regularly, actually, for himself. He doesn't um, go around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. He goes around saying, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of man. A term that kind of means God-man. Um, the son phrase actually kind of equating himself to a son of God. And then son of man also signifying his true humanness, that he is fully human. Just an interesting, interesting term. But he in um, verse 14 and 15, let's just read here. I guess we'll start in 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So the son of man, Jesus, must be lifted up. And we see this in scripture happening in two ways. First, that Jesus was lifted up on the cross, but then he was lifted up into glory when he ascended into heaven. Interesting to just recognize that, you know, us knowing the whole story, that first he was lifted up in the crucifixion and then in his glorification in the ascension. But without the cross, there was no crown. The glory came after the burden, after the cross. But this moves into what's arguably the most famous verse in all of scripture. It's the one that um, even non-Christians have seen and interacted with. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In this verse, we see the motivation of God, which is love, God's love. He so loved the world. We see who is the recipient. The world includes all of us. We see that there was no price too costly because he gave his one and only son. We notice that God is the source and the initiator of salvation. He's the one who gives us salvation. He initiates it. 
in the giving. The alternate to eternal life in this verse, it says so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. So the alternate to eternal life is perishing, ceasing to exist. Verse 17 goes on. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Again, just seeing that motivation, the reason behind why Jesus was sent was his love and the to, with the intent to save the world through him. What a beautiful picture of God's love and his grace and his mercy for us. Verse 18 says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. That verse right there gives us such great hope. There's no judgment against, against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So our reaction to Jesus serves as our judgment. We pronounce our own judgment in this trial, whether we are going to be saved ultimately or not, or whether we'll perish. It all has to do with our belief. Verse 19, the Judgment is based on this fact. God came into the, God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others may see they are doing what God wants. So those who are doing things other than in accordance to God's will, those who are being disobedient to God, don't wish to be seen or exposed. And so they stay away from Christ. And we can see this just in, if we take it out of the spiritual context and we just put it in worldly context, typically criminals sneak around and hide. They don't openly commit their crimes. Conversely, law-abiding citizens have no reason to conceal their behavior. They just go about their business in public and don't worry about who sees them because they are following the law. They have no reason to conceal. Similarly, those who are doing what God doesn't want them to do, they try to hide from God. Um, So often we see people avoiding church and avoiding God because they don't want to be exposed, because they have a guilt that's within them. And I've realized that that this may not even be a conscious choice. There may be times in your life that you have been tempted to hide from Christ or to stay away from church. And maybe you don't even recognize that the reason behind staying away actually has to do with your own guilt or your own feelings of I'm not worthy or I'm not worth what God offers to me. I'm not worthy to stand in his presence. And so often when we're struggling, we hide from Christ. Ultimately, we know we cannot hide from Christ. You know, he knows everything and he's the light. He's the one that sheds light on all that we do and on our hearts and on our motives so some, sometimes I think subconsciously people just stay away out of fear, not recognizing that he sees them even when they are 
hiding from him. Just an interesting, uh, interesting concept, I think, to, um, to consider. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Whether that is a known behavior, whether you recognize you're doing it or not, Think about those times in your life when you have hidden or stayed stayed away from church, uh, your Christian friends, maybe not been getting in the word, in the Bible. And oftentimes there may be at the root of that some sin that is in your life that you are ashamed of and therefore you're hiding from him. Let's move on. The next section talks about John the Baptist and his disciples and his disciples come to him and they're a little jealous because they see that Jesus is, Jesus's disciples are now baptizing people and people are going to Jesus's disciples to be baptized rather than John the Baptist and his disciples to be baptized. And so there's a jealousy going on here because it seems, it would seem if we put it into modern day context, that Jesus's ministry is growing and John's is waning and his disciples aren't cool with that. So they come to him and they kind of complain about this. And John the Baptist Verse 27 says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Everything has its source in God is what John's trying to say. He's telling them you only receive what God gives. Jesus isn't stealing converts. God is giving them to him. What a great perspective for us to remember. And it makes me think of Job. When Job's life turns on its head and things go down the tubes very quickly and it's just rotten, Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same attitude we see here with John. The Lord has given me many converts, many people to baptize. But right now, maybe he's taking them away and giving them to Jesus. And I'm cool with that, guys. And you need to be cool with that too. That's what he's telling his followers. Like, this is not my job. This is Jesus's job. And I was just preparing for him. And he goes on and uses this really cool analogy of a groom and a bride and the best man. And he says, you know, it's the groom who marries the bride. The best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. John never expected anything else. He knew his place was to prepare for Jesus. And he accepted the role that God had for him in God's big story. What is God's plan for you? What is God's role for you? And have you accepted that willingly and joyfully knowing that it may not be the plan or the role that you would have chosen for your life or that you might dream of or see someone else succeeding and want what they have? Have you accepted the place and the position and the role that God has given to you just like John did? I love that. He says, I am filled with joy at his success. He is not jealous like his disciples are of Christ's success. 
So John's saying, you know, he is the best man. He has brought the bride and groom together. And now he is filled with joy as he's fading out of the picture. Verse 30, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. His true joy was in knowing that he had done his job as the best man. He had brought the groom and the bride together. He had prepared the way for Jesus. And he knew that he needed to fade out of the picture there. I love, love, love that humility. And I think so often we're thinking of the theme of this podcast and looking above so often our struggle comes from looking within and looking at ourselves. We want the glory. We want the recognition. We want the praise. We want our ministry or our business or our whatever endeavor we're doing to go well and to become big and successful. And we focus so much on me that we forget that as Christ followers, Ultimately, our goal is to bring attention to him. So whatever it is that you're doing, and if you're struggling right now with not feeling like you're getting credit or a recognition or um, the time, whatever it is that you're not getting, that you're feeling um, sad or sorry for yourself or wishing that you had, just consider this. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And there are times, absolutely, when God grows and makes fruitful those things that we're doing. But even in those times, our goal is not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to him. Oh, girls, ladies, and whoever else is listening, there's so much in here. I feel like we could just go on and on and spend an hour in each chapter, but we're going to keep moving. John goes on and says that God, Jesus has come from above and is greater than anyone else. As we try to look above, we need to keep looking at Jesus, the one who is from above and who is greater than anyone else. Keep looking at his actions and at his words, listening to him. Verse 34, it says, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words and God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And I just want to pause here for a brief moment. This choice that John sets up here at the end between belief and disobedience is really the crux of his gospel. It's his favorite thought. He asks this and brings us up over and over again. How will you respond to Christ? Because the answer is the difference between life and death. But you notice I said the the difference between belief and disobedience. It's not the difference between belief and disbelief, as John says it, but disobedience, anyone who doesn't obey. If you believe, you will obey. So disobedience shows our disbelief. Anyone who believes in God's son is obedient to God's son. All right, chapter four. This might be one of my very, very, very 
most favorite stories in all of the Bible. And it's the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus is traveling <coughs> um, from Judea, and he's returning to Galilee. And in between those two uh, areas is the area called Samaria. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And as he goes through the Samaritan, he comes past the Samaritan village of Sychar and stops at this well. Real fast in verse six, I want to point out, it says, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we see Jesus's humanity shining through. He was tired. It says he sat wearily beside the well. He was exhausted from the travel, from the teaching he'd been doing, um, all of this. He's tired. I love that we can see his humanity here. But soon this woman comes to get water from the well. And women typically drew water early in the day when it was cool out, and they did so in a group. But here we see this woman coming at noon, the hottest, sunniest part of the day, by herself. She comes to get water from the well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, she's got two strikes against her to most Jews. She is a Samaritan, and she is a woman. Rabbis did not talk to women in public. It would ruin their reputation. And Jews had a complete disdain for Samaritans because the Samaritan people had intermarried with conquering nations and were no longer considered true Jews by those who were full-blooded Jews. So she had these two strikes against her. And yet here's this rabbi speaking to her. Verse 9 says the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She's highly cautious of what is happening. But Jesus doesn't get into this whole Jew and Samaritan issue. He goes straight to her heart and he has this uncanny way of doing this over and over again. He goes straight to the heart of the matter and he replies, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now the Jews talked about their souls thirsting for God and quenching their thirst with a living water. So anyone who had spiritual insight would have recognized the figurative language that Jesus was using here. However, the woman does not have that spiritual insight. And so she takes him quite literally. Living water, literally in that day, meant water from a spring, water like running water as opposed to stagnant water that was collected in a cistern. And this well that they were at was not a spring-fed well. It was the cistern type of well. So it was stagnant, not living water. So her response to him is, well, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. This well is very deep. Where are you going to get living water? And then she says to him, 
And do you think that you have water that's better than our ancestor who gave us this well? She's kind of laughing at what he's suggesting. Jesus responds to her, anyone who drinks this, yes, this literal water (laughs) will soon become thirsty again. He's saying, yeah, literal water isn't going to satisfy you. You have to come back. You have to keep drinking. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. He is proclaiming himself as the Messiah right here. And she is completely oblivious to it. But this whole bit here about the living water and the thirst of our souls is referring to the fact that all of us have this deep thirst within our souls. And it's a thirst for living water that can only be quenched by Jesus. But she still doesn't get it. Verse 15, she's like, well, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. She's probably saying this in jest. She's probably mocking him at this point. Like, She's still thinking about actual water bubbling from a fountain. Like, you don't have this, but go ahead and give it to me. She's completely missing the fundamental truth that Jesus has something that will satisfy her soul's thirst. And so here Jesus does what he does so cleverly, and he just turns the whole thing on its head. She isn't getting this whole thirst and water thing. So he changes the subject to approach this truth from a different direction. He goes straight to her heart and how she has been trying to satisfy her soul thirst. And he says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. The woman replied and Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You've certainly spoken the truth. He shows her just how much he knows about her. Can you imagine her inner response in this moment when she realizes this man that she's spoken, speaking to knows all about her, knows all about the disappointments that she has had in relationship after relationship. And he's reminding her of this intentionally in order that she might appreciate the deep and lasting satisfaction that he brings. This woman has been trying to satisfy her soul's thirst in relationships. But I wonder, where do you try to satisfy your soul's thirst? woman goes on and now she's maybe deflecting. She's changing the subject. Maybe she felt exposed at this time because she doesn't even acknowledge what he says, but she changes the subject and says, you know, well, clearly you're a prophet. So tell me, why is it you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place of worship? She goes and changes the topic to this debate that the Jews and Samaritans have had for a long, long time. And he answers her question and talks about the fact that there's a time coming. It is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So in our invisible part of us, the highest part of man, 
that will last when the physical part vanishes, the spirit and in truth, in sincerity. True worship doesn't happen based on location. It doesn't have to include certain rituals or liturgies. It doesn't mean we bring certain gifts, but it is when man's spirit speaks to and meets with God. It's a sincere inward response. Now, the woman realizing that everything that he's told her is just too much for her to understand. And so she replies and says, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And he tells her, I am the Messiah. And in one moment, everything that he has said becomes clear. And the woman leaves her old water pot, the literal water. And she runs to the village telling people, come and see, come and see. She exchanged her water, her living water. The start of this story, she was avoiding people. She came to the well at the heat of the day by herself alone. And now she's running into town. This woman who has lived in sin, who has probably been an outcast among the outcasts. And she's looking for people to tell them. Verse 30 says, so the people came streaming from the village to see him. What was it about how she told them that they believed her? How had she changed in that interaction with Jesus so that the whole town leaves and runs to the well? In this meantime, the disciples have come back and they brought food and they urged Jesus to eat. And he says, I'm not hungry. I have a kind of food you know nothing about. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus's sole purpose was to do God's will. We never see him acting out of his desires. And if we're to live like Jesus, then our purpose should be to do God's will in all that we do. The more that we become like Jesus, the more we realize that the only opinion that matters is God's. I'm jumping down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And they came out to see him. Now, this woman wasn't a scholar. She was a sinner, but her testimony had a powerful effect because she was willing to share it. So I have a challenge for you this week. Share your testimony. Share your story. Tell someone else. Maybe you're in a small group. Maybe you just have a friend. Tell someone your story about your encounter with Jesus and how Jesus has changed your life. Because our testimonies have power. This sinner woman is now changing her entire community because she is willing to speak. So be willing to speak. Be willing to share your testimony with others. This village comes out and they beg Jesus to stay. And so he stays for two days. And many more heard his message and believed. What a powerful story. This chapter ends with a story of Jesus healing um, the son of an official from Capernaum. He comes to Jesus 
pleading, begging with Jesus to come to his home and heal his little boy before he dies. Jesus tells him, go back, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. He took Jesus at his word. He didn't demand that Jesus come. He didn't demand proof. He took Jesus at his word. Do you take Jesus at your word? Do your words and actions cause others to believe in God? There's so much powerful, powerful stuff in these two chapters. I just, I just love it. I love how we see Jesus interacting, how we see Jesus teaching. Remember, Jesus is the word. So as you look back through these chapters, as you consider who he is, look at his words. Encounter the word. See how his words change people, change lives. See um, just his interaction and his love and his compassion, his willingness to speak truth, his willingness to cut to the heart of the matter with both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and how a single encounter with Jesus can change an entire community. Let's keep looking above, looking to Jesus who has power to change lives, to change communities, and let's let him change us. Hope you have a good week.